Father, we are thankful today for the cross. Father, your son suffered an unimaginable death, rejected by his own people, scorned by heathen leaders and kings, mocked by soldiers, his own people crying out before a Gentile governor, crucify him, crucify him. beaten and bruised, forced to carry his own cross up to the place called a skull, laid upon a cross made of wood from a tree, nails driven into his hands and his feet, his body marred beyond recognition by scourging, and there he slowly, physically died. And yet, Father, we know from your word that the great horror of the cross is not found in the physical torment that Christ suffered. But that there, on that cross, he drank full your wrath. That you poured out upon him what we deserve. And so, Father, we have just sung that our Savior bled. And yet, Father, we sing of this sorrowful thing with joy because it is through the sacrifice of Christ that we can find True joy for all time. That we can be happy all the day because Christ has taken our sin upon Himself and He has given us His righteousness. So that now we can come before Your presence and we can enter into Your throne room boldly knowing that we are accepted because of what Christ has done. So, Father, we give thanks, we worship you, we sing of the glories of the cross. But yet, Father, we also look back on our lives throughout this last week. And there have been many times where our actions and our thoughts have not been centered upon the Christ, upon the cross, but upon ourselves. where we have followed our own selfish desires, we have gone after things that go against the wonderful, life-giving truths of your word. And yet, Father, when we look to the cross, there we see forgiveness again and again and again. And Father, we seek your face today to work within us a transformation so that this next week we will be less like ourselves and more like Jesus Christ. So today, Father, as you 
encourage us, also challenge us to live in light of the cross of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be looking specifically this morning at verses 23 through 25. And we're not going to get through it all. And my intention this morning is to have a shorter sermon. Um, Knock on wood. So, I only have one page and a little bit extra. And usually a sermon is, is, is two and a half pages. So, that's what I have in my notes. My intention is to be a little briefer this morning. Because I think it's important for us, instead of pushing onward or pushing past what we're going to look at today, to sit with it for a second. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading in verse 23. And if you remember several weeks ago when we were in this passage before, we actually dealt with this passage. And so this passage becomes a bit of a transition passage for us in what we're going to look at this week and next week. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, When he was reviled... He, that being Christ, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity, I'm sure perhaps you have had the opportunity, after a long, arduous day of work, whether it be uh, a difficult day at the office, or maybe you've been working outside at your house, and, and you've, just, you've just really felt the weight of the day upon you. And, and you have the opportunity at the end of the day to just sit down and, and to look up in the sky, and there you're able to see the tapestry of God's beauty displayed as the sun sets. I know there's been many times, even as I've been working and doing things, driving from one place to another, and, and I'll look out and, and see for a moment the, the different hues of reds and purples and even yellows that the sunset will, will provide. I know we have a camera here on the front door, and there are times where I will pull up that camera towards the end of the day, and the sun sets right over the the transformer station, not, not like the, the, the vehicles that turn into robots, but the electrical transformer station. And it would set, and there's been so just some beautiful sights that I've been able to see there. And, and there's, a, there's a, a comfort, there's a joy, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's an encouragement when you see God's beauty displayed in that glorious sunset. And it's, an, it's encouraging, it helps us. After a difficult day, after doing what we've been called to do, it helps us to bask in the beauty of what God has done. 
And I would say to some extent, that is what Peter is calling us to do here at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2. He has called us to do some very difficult things. And those difficult things begin with a word that we repeated over and over again. What's that word? Submit. And he's called us not just to submit to the people that we get along with and the people that we agree with, but he's called us to submit to people who treat us unjustly. That is, that is a hard thing. And so I, I think Peter, of course, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes some time here to allow us to bask in the glories of what Christ has done in fulfilling justice in Jesus Christ. The path of the pilgrim that we're called to walk can be arduous. It can be difficult, demanding, and it can be very easy for us to focus on those difficulties alone. But Peter here calls us to hope in the good news of Christ's redemption as we walk as the path of a pilgrim. The gospel should never become old hat. It should never become something that is, oh, just that's sort of elementary Christian stuff. It is the very lifeblood of our lives before the Lord. And so what we see here and what we're going to look at this morning and next week is that there is good news for pilgrims. It seems like the previous verses have been a lot of bad news for pilgrims. People are going to ill-treat you. They're not going to treat you justly. And I'm saying, and the Lord is saying to you, submit to them. Submit to them. Well, to what degree? Look to Jesus as the example of your submission. And so we see here, though, that in the midst of that high call that Peter gives us, he also gives good news for pilgrims. And he points to, first of all, the satisfaction of justice as being good news for pilgrims. The satisfaction of justice is good news for pilgrims. We see, first of all, the good news of the just judge. And this is where we come in verse 23. And we see uh, the, the, the transition that Peter makes between verse 23 and verse 24. He's speaking of Christ as our example of submission. And we're not going to rehash what we looked at several weeks ago, but Peter speaks about how when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten. But instead, what did Jesus do? He continued entrusting himself or handing himself over to him, the Father, who is the one who judges justly. And so there's a great encouragement there for us as we suffer unjustly at the hands of others. There's a great encouragement for us to recognize that justice will be served. God will not permit injustice to persist in this world. But before we're so quick to jump on the justice bandwagon, and today, how many of you have heard the term social justice recently? All right. It's everywhere. And it's almost as though Peter anticipates a potential objection to the idea 
of, of us entrusting ourselves over to him who judges justly. Because if we are to truly, we are to be truly judged justly, that actually doesn't seem like it would be very good news, does it? In Exodus chapter 34, God provides a, a description of himself that is interesting. This is after Moses has come down off the mountain after receiving the law from God, and, and God is providing his law to his people. And what are his people doing at the base of the mountain? They're worshiping a golden calf. And they're saying, they're not saying that this is a different God. They're just saying, this is Yahweh. This is the God who led you up out of Egypt. And of course, God is incited to wrath at this moment. And, and so he sends Moses down the mountain and Moses picks up the law that God had given. And what does he do with it? Throws it at the calf and destroys the calf. And so Moses doing this and, and he melts down the calf, makes all the people eat it. Now Moses has to go back up the mountain. And he goes back up the mountain and there he takes two more stone tablets and writes the law on those stone tablets again. And God comes before Moses as he's up there again a second time. And, and this is more important when we understand the backdrop of what had just happened. Israel was involved in unimaginable idolatry. They were worshiping this golden calf like it was Yahweh. And so God comes and he provides the law to his people again on these on these stone tablets, and he says, The Lord passed before Moses, and he proclaims to him, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. Well, who is Yahweh? Well, he is a God who is merciful and gracious. And you can hear the people in, at the base of the mountain saying, Amen! He is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, Amen! A God who keeps steadfast love for thousands. And he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And if you're one of the people who was just worshiping this golden calf, amen, God forgives. But, notice the rest of the passage. He is a God who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Wait a second. What is it? Is God a God who is forgiving and loving and provides mercy and steadfast love to generations? Or is he a God who does not forgive, who does not clear the guilt of the guilty? It's a puzzling statement. And God is telling us here that he is a God who is gracious, who is merciful, who is forgiving. But he is also a God who is perfectly just. Now that is the very foundation of what Peter points to that Christ entrusted himself to the Father because of. Because the Father was a judge who judges justly, Christ entrusted himself to him. He literally handed himself over to a just judge. So again, as, as we said, we can take hope from this. I mean, we live in a world full of injustice, don't we? There's injustice 
when you drive up out of here, when somebody doesn't stop at the stop sign like they're supposed to, and they pull out in front of you. Oh, injustice. Where's the cop? I, I've, I've taken some time when I'm driving and people are acting like idiots. Not that I ever act like an idiot on the road, but, but you know, I, I, I've said to my wife sometimes, I said, I wish I was an undercover police officer. I'd be, I'd be lighting people up left and right. Our hearts are, are frustrated. Our lives are frustrated by injustice. And it's evident in the world we live in today. Justice and injustice and social justice is what we talk about all the time. And there is great hope that when we come to God, we come to a God who perfectly provides justice. And so whether we face injustice because of our allegiance to Christ, or whether it's just general injustice of the world, whether it be politics or society, society economically, at work, school, or with our families and friends, we come to a just judge. There is good news in the fact that man's failures in justice will one day be made right by the just one. But... Peter takes this theme of justice and he zooms out now. And instead of looking at how we are called to submit to unjust rulers, he now pulls back and looks at how God can be just and the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus. How can it be? And Peter takes us to the heart of the gospel in verse 24. He, Christ, Himself bore our what? Sins. Where? In his body on the tree. This short phrase explains how God can be a God of mercy and grace and loving kindness and yet also be a God who by no means clears the guilty. All injustice must be judged. See, if you think about it, if forgiveness were simply clearing the guilty from any kind of consequence by just sort of looking over or passing over sin, then justice would actually be un upended. You know, if, if someone came and, and they were a murderer and they came to a judge and they went to that judge and it was clear that they had murdered somebody and they said to the judge, well, I'm just asking for you to be merciful and to forgive me. And the judge says, okay, you're free to go. Would that be justice? No. If that happened, we would call the judge unjust. If forgiveness was simply clearing the guilt for each offense, then this type of justice would be something that happened transactionally. So that each time we sin, we'd have to be going back to this judge who judges justly and, and asking for forgiveness over and over and over again. And the Bible is clear. Christ made a sacrifice once for all time. In other words, simply looking over our past offenses does not serve justice. Justice must be served. Especially from a judge who presents himself as the standard of and perfect adjudicator of justice. Look at what's said in Psalm 33.5. God loves righteousness and justice. 
The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of what? Justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Isaiah, the Lord speaks through Isaiah's mouth. I, the Lord, love justice. And then he speaks of the things he hates, which are injustice, robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And we see in Revelation chapter 16, as there are believers that are suffering, that have been martyred for the sake of Christ, they find hope in the fact that God is a just judge. It says, I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments... For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty and true, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So if we look outwardly, It's very easy to see that when people treat us unjustly, it's good news that they're going to get what's coming to them, right? It's good news that justice will be served when we look outwardly. But if verse 24 and that first phrase of verse 24 were not there, then the news of a just judge would not be good news. Because what does that mean for me then as someone who has spurned his commandments, who has turned from his law, who has gone away from him over and over and over again? What do I deserve? Justice and judgment. But notice what happens here. Christ Himself bore our sin in his body, where? On the tree. There is good news that there is a just judge because our salvation, our redemption is not a turning back of justice. It is a perfect completion of justice in what Christ has suffered on our behalf. Which brings us to the second point of good news, that there is good news of the cursed tree. It's interesting that Peter uses the term, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And as we just said, the reality of God's perfect justice, when we look at it concerning ourselves, does not seem like good news. If God can really not just clear the guilty, then who can be forgiven? In fact, the veracity and the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God to his own word would actually be in jeopardy. Because what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? There was a promise given to Adam and Eve that in the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day they would what? Die. Well, 
if that wasn't true, if God wasn't going to bring about a curse upon them, if death wasn't going to be the consequence of sin, then can we trust anything God says? I mean, was he just, was it an empty threat? Is that what God's justice is, is an empty threat that he'll never follow through with? Because if that's the case, then there's no consequence for living a life that flaunts his laws. Scriptures are clear. Romans 3, 23, that every one of us have sinned. Right? This, and, and here's the thing. What I'm, this is elementary Christianity stuff, yet it is the very basic fundamental building blocks of our hope that we need to look at all the time. You and I are sinners. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And what is the consequence of that sin? Just as God said to Adam and Eve that they would, what? Die? So it is for us that the wages of sin is death. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, There's an extended period from verses 10 through 18 where Paul goes on to describe how deeply involved in sin we are. Our throats are open graves. Our mouths are full of cursing. We we go astray all the time. We are far worse than we think of ourselves as being. Far worse. And yet... There is good news because Jesus Christ took upon himself a curse. The curse of sin is death. And notice what Peter points to here in this passage. He bore our sins in his body where? On the tree. Why is the tree significant? The Old Testament law, it spoke of how if someone had violated a law, they were to be hung on a tree because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Paul brings this up in Galatians chapter 3, that Christ redeemed us from what? The curse. By doing what? Becoming a curse for us. Because it's written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. There is good news when Peter points us to the tree because he is saying that Christ has taken the justice that we deserved. He has taken the curse of sin upon himself on the tree. Now this is unthinkable. The Lord of glory, the God of creation, the Son of God became a curse for us. Jesus knew no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he did not threaten himself. When he suffered, he didn't say, I'm going to come. And and Jesus had all power at his disposal. And yet, he withheld all of that. Why? To become a curse for you and me. He became our curse on that tree. 
Which brings us then finally to the good news of substitution. See, it's important for us to note that Jesus himself bore whose sins? Our sins. He bore your and mine, our sins. I think it would be appropriate to write there, to, bore, to bear, and put your name in there. He bore Phil Golden's sins. See, there might be an objection that we might be said that, well, isn't the cross itself actually a miscarriage of justice? Because Jesus was innocent, was he not? And yet he fully bore the wrath reserved by God for his people on himself on the tree. And so how is it possible that justice is served when an innocent one suffers for the sins of others? In fact, in our society, we are actually, our, our government is situated, our judicial system is, is created in such a way that we would rather let guilty people go free than to convict innocent people. It is beyond comprehension that an innocent person would suffer for unjustly for what they haven't done. And we see that there's groups out there, the Innocent Project, the Innocence Project, that goes out and tries to prove that people aren't guilty of the crimes that they've been convicted of. It's inconceivable to our thoughts that innocence would suffer unjustly. But yet Peter specifically tells us that this is exactly what Jesus does. See, when Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was being made sin. And in the garden, he prayed before the Father that a cup had been set before him. And he said, if it's possible, let the cup pass from me. And yet even there, he submitted himself to the Father's will, yet not as I will, but your will be done. Judas betrays him. He's brought up before a kangaroo court, before the high priest. He's brought before Pilate. And then as we read in John 19, he's nailed to the cross. Fully drinking the cup of wrath. Jesus was not a victim of a miscarriage of justice. He willingly gave himself for us as an act of love for his people. No one, no one has ever loved you like Jesus loves you. As Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Then he says, logically, you know, very rarely will someone die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, maybe someone would even dare to die. You know, we, we, would, we look at like secret service agents. And they're willing to take a bullet 
for the president because the president holds a position that they view more valuable than their own lives. Anyone want to sign up for that job? Very few people sign up for that. It's rare. But very rarely would you see a secret, in fact, it would probably never happen, would you see a secret service agent walking in front of a drugged out prostitute and taking a bullet for her. And yet Jesus says that he shows, Paul says that Jesus shows his love for us in that while we were what? Sinners, not good, not righteous, sinners. What did Christ do for us? Died for us. He took upon himself our sins in his own body on the tree. And for our sake, he was made to be sin who knew no sin so that what might happen to us, we might become the righteousness of God in him. He exchanged our sin for his righteousness. And he gives us his righteousness. It is through his suffering of our penalty as a substitute that the news of a just judge becomes good news. God did not turn back justice in saving his people. He perfectly executed justice. But for his people, that justice was executed not on them, but on Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! What a Savior. And so that brings us back to the argument here that Peter is making. It seems sort of out of place. Why does Peter go on and in and, and talking about our responsibilities to submit to leaders, even as they treat us unjustly, why do we have this seeming rabbit trail that goes off into the gospel? And I would submit to you, he does this because this good news becomes the very thing that carries us through the injustices that we face. That the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for us, when he did not deserve it, but yet he did it so that justice could be served and we could stand before God fully righteous, that carries us through any injustice we might face in this earth. And so there's just quickly five things that I want us to, to note here about how the satisfaction of justice is good news. And you're like, you said you were going to be done early. There's five minutes left and you have five more points. We'll get through it. The satisfaction of justice is good news because it reminds us of our hope. Remember, we're strangers and exiles here on this earth. Our hope is not in the things that we own. They do not define us. Our bank accounts do not define us. Our jobs do not define us. Our position in this world does not define us. What defines us is that we are in Jesus Christ. And that being in Him by faith changes us so that our lives are completely different. And we walk the path of a pilgrim. Why? Because Jesus has taken the justice that we deserved and satisfied it so that now we can live for him on this earth. That is our hope. And here's the thing, no matter how much injustice you face in this world, nothing 
can take that away from those who are in Christ by faith. You can lose everything in this world and you will still have hope in Christ. And then it is an unflinching source of joy. You know, you're probably not jumping up and down and putting on a happy face when, when Peter says in verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So you wake up on Monday morning and you've got to go to work with a manager who is just absolutely tearing you to shreds every day. You've got to work with somebody who you just can't seem to get along with. How do you do that? And in the midst of that, how do you find joy? Because you have hope in Christ and no one can take that away from you. Notice what Paul says in Romans 5, 10 through 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So there's this wonderful hope of this substitution that Jesus does. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, he says we have this wonderful hope in this life, and then he says more than that, what do we do? We also what? Rejoice. The Christian, when they truly think about what God has given them in Christ, there's truly not a reason not to find joy in this life. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't deal with complex emotional dynamics in our lives. And I'm not saying that we put on a fake smile, but there is a source of complete and eternal joy in Jesus Christ. It's an unflinching source of joy. And then it calls us to proclaim the gospel to others. You know, one of the best things you can do when someone is treating you unjustly is to treat them with grace. The Bible actually says that when you do this, you heap burning coals upon their heads. Treat them with grace. And then at some point, they're going to wonder, you know, I'm really treating this person like dirt. How are they responding this way? And that's when you can become an ambassador. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we just quoted, speaks of that great exchange that Jesus does. Right before that, Paul says that we are all ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And so Paul is imploring the believers at Corinth, be reconciled to God. And so what can we do? What can we take up? Call people to what? Be reconciled to God. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to see those who are causing you to face injustice turned and changed by the gospel of Christ because you have called them to be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ? You know what the greatest example of that is? Paul, who in one moment was holding the cloaks of those who were throwing boulders on Stephen and killing him, and the next moment was seeing Christ in heaven, and the next moment was leading the church and writing most of the New Testament. Glory to God. The great work of his reconciliation. It also shows how God can turn injustice on its head. You know, we strive and yearn and desire justice. 
and we don't like it when we face injustice, do you realize that the greatest good that has ever been performed in this universe happened by an act of great injustice? So that God brings from good that which others meant for evil. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation or satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. There's a sermon there. We don't got the time for it. But notice what he says. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was also to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be two things, just and what? The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God turned injustice on its head. To provide true hope. And so the satisfaction of justice is good news because it reminds us of the pilgrim's hope. It's an unflinching source of joy. It calls us to proclaim the gospel to others. It shows us how God can turn injustice on its head. And then finally, when we fail as pilgrims, it reminds us of Christ, our advocate. I'd encourage you to read through verses 13 through 22 again this afternoon and see what Peter is calling you to. And then look back at your last week or the week before and see how you did with what he called you to do. In fact, look through the entire book again. It wouldn't take him much to read through, uh, through chapter 2. Peter's calling us to do all sorts of things as pilgrims. And as I read through this list, I to my shame, look and say, boy, I'm failing all the times at many of these things. And that's why our hope as pilgrims is not built upon our performance of what God has called us to do. It's built upon Christ's perfection and righteousness that we have in Him by faith. And so as we fail in this world, it gives us hope. As John says in 1 John chapter 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And we're going to begin looking at that next week, at how this glorious thing calls us to not sin. But there's a wonderful hope that if anyone does sin, who do we have? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. We are called to be pilgrims, but Jesus Christ satisfied that debt. And that is good news for pilgrims. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. We ask, Lord, that you would work in our midst through your spirit today. Father, now as we take some time to worship you for what you've done for us. Father, may we rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen.